This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Something makes people uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, I was raised in the tradition of the civil rights movement. I studied the civil rights movement. And uh, my heroes are people like Rosa Parks, uh, the woman who sat on the bus and refused to give up her seat to a white person as the law dictated. All of these people are my heroes. They were taking a risk to highlight an unjust law. They were bringing attention to an unjust law. And in order to do that, that's called civil disobedience. In order to engage in civil disobedience, there has to be a risk and there's a risk to me. And so I knew it. And so the question for me I had to face is, am I willing to go to prison for this? Today, we're joined by Dr. Carl Hart. We're going to be talking about his new book, Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in a Land of Fear. Dr. Carl Hart wants us to come out of the closet. He says that all drug use should be out in the open. We shouldn't stigmatize. And I'm going to let him do the explaining. So you're listening to Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Elite UK. Here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Where true values seldom stray. Thank you so much for joining us on Stop and Search. And today, yes, we're joined by the legend that is Dr. Carl Hart. And if you don't know him by now, then, well, you've not followed the drugs debate and you've also not followed popular culture because Dr. Carl Hart, he's the professor of neuroscience and psychology at Columbia University. He is the star of House, well, many people think he's the star of The House I Live In, the documentary, which I really recommend you watch. High Price, he's the author of that. And his new book, Drug Use for Grown-Ups, is what we're going to be speaking about today. And yes, he wants us to come out of the closet with drug use. So I'm going to let him explain why, because he's going to be able to put this in far better words and terms than I can. And if you want to know more about Dr. Carl Hart's work, then of course, go to his website, drcarlhart.com. Follow his work, because you won't be disappointed. So I'm going to get straight on with this. Drug use for grown-ups is going to be out as we speak. Please go and read it. Please pass it on to someone. Get this to policymakers. Yeah, let's talk about drug use for grown-ups. So I can't believe, because this is a personal thrill for me, that I'm joined by Dr. Carl Hart, because I've known of your work for a fair few years now, because we've got mutual friends, you know, we know Johan Hari, um, who unequivocally admits that he loves you. Um, and to actually finally chat to you in person, as it were, is just a, it's kind of a dream come true. Um, so with that kind of bolstering to your ego, uh, can I get you to do a little bit of an introduction uh, of who you are and your work, if that's okay? So I'm Carl Hart. Um, I'm a professor at uh, Columbia University. I also do research there. Um, my research deals with um, studying the effects in people, uh, studying the effects of drugs, I should say, in people, drugs ranging from cocaine to methamphetamine to marijuana uh, to opioids, a uh, wide range of drugs. And I think I first became aware of you probably as, as an introduction to your work and then subsequently reading um, High Price 
I, I saw you in The House I Live In, the film, which used one of the most powerful components of that film. Um, so going right back to them for me, um, what was it like filming The House I Live In, just to give people a little bit of an overview of The House I Live In? It's about the uh, prison industrial complex in America, and you are one of the voices of reason within that film. So that whole experience of fi- making that film and the subject message that you addressed, what was that like and what was the reaction that you had from that? Well, it was the first uh, feature documentary film that I was in and, and featured. Uh, so it was kind of, uh, it was really taxing because the filmmakers followed me for a couple of years. And I thought I'd go in, I went into it lightly thinking that uh, it's not a big deal. You got a couple cameras following you. But then they were everywhere. And then whenever you are filming, uh, they get in every aspect of your life back home in Miami, New York, and um, I like the filmmakers, uh, but I don't like people having that kind of access into your life, particularly uh, people who don't necessarily know the nuances of black life and uh, white filmmakers uh, um, uh, in control of your black life story. Uh, But those filmmakers, particularly Melinda, I know uh, Eugene's um, Eugeki, Eugeki is the director, but Melinda shopping uh, was outstanding, uh, and it was a good experience. And ultimately, I think the film helped people to see that the war on drugs was uh, a superb victory for law enforcement, politicians, and um, uh, the treatment industry, the folks who run jails, they were making out like bandits while the rest of us were getting our asses kicked. And so I think they they showed that quite nicely. We're going to be speaking about your new book in a minute about, um, well, it's called, and it does what it says on the tin, Drug Use for Grown Ups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of the Fear. And what the, the the overriding themes to your work is about trying to get across evidence and information to the layman that doesn't understand that and probably doesn't even want to hear that. So with regards to the media you've done, we just mentioned the film, the books that you've written, this one, and High Price, how important is it that we do strip down information to get it across to people that just don't care? Uh, yeah, that's a great point. The thing is most people care about their own freedom. And so you, I'm trying to make sure that people understand that uh, drug use, just people's recreational drug use, is really about their freedom of choice, their freedom to put whatever they choose in their bodies. Uh, and as long as they are not bothering anybody, they're not um, disrupting anybody else's ability to uh, enjoy their freedoms and their liberties, it's none of their goddamn business. That's what I'm trying to point out. And it is so key within your new book, Drug Use for Grown Ups, that personal liberty is something we don't necessarily address within the drugs debate. We we do frame it around public health, and you use great examples of automobile accidents. We've got yes. so many of them in this country and in your country, and yet we don't have these these massive public health drives to ban automobiles. So why do you think the narrative does change on drugs? I think the narrative changes on drugs in part because uh, we have agreed, implicitly agreed in these societies, the UK, the US, that when it comes to drugs, we will suspend liberties because in our minds, we have seen somebody be destroyed by drug addiction. And so drugs are so bad, let's suspend personal liberties. We have agreed, this is an implicit agreement. Uh, In some cases in the United States at the Supreme Court, it's more explicit. Um, And uh, that is baseless. And, And so I'm trying to point out in the book that no one has the right to sell out my freedoms. No one has the right to sell out your freedoms, particularly when you didn't do anything that warrants your freedoms being sold out. But uh, the powers that be, the politicians, 
Even the scientists have agreed on selling out people's freedoms when it comes to drugs. And that's bullshit. And I'm trying to point that out in the new book. Is it difficult to balance up that point of view and that argument so with the academic evidence, do you ever get accused of being you know, a libertarian, as it were, by potentially right-wing commentators? Um, I haven't explicitly been called the libertarian, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Libertarians are, are okay. They're fighting to make sure that people understand some things about liberty uh, on the one hand, but then on the other hand, libertarians seem to be a historical, and which I am not. Um, so uh, sometimes I sound like a libertarian. Sometimes I sound like a conservative. Sometimes I sound like a liberal. Um, I go where the evidence uh, dictates. Uh, that's cool with me. Presumably that is the job of an academic is to be led by the evidence. And I've seen you in debates with people that might not be of an academic nature that try and put across quite convoluted arguments and quite quite nonsensical ones. How do you go about when you get such a nonsense argument coming your way? How do you go about approaching that with, with evidence? Uh, it depends on whether the person is genuine about their comment. If they are genuine about a comment that I may think it's, it's nonsense, but it's my job uh, or duty to try to help them understand, to see the illogical sort of nature of their argument and try to help them walk through it logically. That's, that's if they're willing to do so. But in some cases, people are simply not willing to do so. And they just want to state some bit of information uh, that supports them and regardless of what the evidence says. And that when I, I have to try to identify uh, the difference between those cases, when people are engaged in the conversation and they're playing by the rules of evidence, I am there. But if they're not playing by the rules of evidence, uh, I'm out. I can't do that because there is nothing that I can do to uh, help them to understand um, how this plays out logically, and they're just there to advocate a position, whether it's logical or not. And I don't know how to argue illogically. I don't. I just don't know how to do it. So that's beyond my skill set. So I'm out. Is there any frustrations that you find within that? And, and did any of those frustrations make it to uh, being a, a linchpin of why you wrote this book in particular? Yeah, um, there's a lot of frustration. Um, as you know, we're all now locked down in this pandemic. And over the past summer in the U.S., we had a lot of protests, um, police killings of black people. Um, in many cases, drugs were blamed for the need for police to have this excessive force. Of course, it wasn't true. And so when you have those sorts of situations constantly happening, um, happening when, when I know that these are the same things that happened at the turn of the 20th century, the early 1900s in the U.S., and the same arguments, they have not advanced. Uh, and I know that they're driven by racial bias, prejudice, prejudice. Uh, um, and so I, um, it's frustrating. But um, so I try and write op-eds. I try and write. I try and help people understand who are genuinely interested in understanding. Um, um, it's, it's a challenge. It's frustrating. But um, I feel like I'm equipped to deal with it. And so I feel... Uh, a need. I feel like it's my public duty, responsibility to help because I was educated on the public dime. And so uh, uh, that's why they pay for my education to um, help society uh, function more better and make sure that uh, people's lives are better if I can contribute. And you've always been quite open about that, that you believe that the job of an academic is to push the barriers and to kind of have these conversations that we aren't having. So going back to your book, Drug Use for Grown-Ups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear, that's quite a title. So why and at what point did you go, right, I'm writing this specific book now? What was what was the, the seeds of that? Um, 
really my editor, Scott Moriers, uh, I proposed a book that I thought was safe. And um, uh, it was called uh, The Addiction Industry. Um, and then having a, and, and that book basically was dealing with all of the people making money off of this sort of drug addiction industry. The treatment providers, the cops, the people who run prisons, um, politicians, uh, the parents, all of these people making money and making it easy uh, for uh, people to uh, blame drugs for anything that ills society. And in the conversation with my editor, Scott, um, Scott was like, yeah, man, I'm happy. Yeah, that's, we can do this book. He's like, but, you know, and talking with you, that doesn't sound like the book you want to do. And I was like, oh, that's not really the book I want to do. And so I talk, we talked about the book I really wanted to do. And he was like, let's do it. And this is the book I wanted to do. I wanted to, like, push the boundaries. And then I was also, I had always had this nagging feeling that, I use drugs personally, and I have for a number of years, but everybody's in the closet. And then I got this feeling that I was being dishonest. And that really fucked with me because I have a lot of friends in the business and they're doing really well. They are some of the most accomplished people in our society and they all use drugs, but they're in the closet too. And here we are, all these accomplished people who use drugs, and we are allowing uh, drugs to be caricatured or drug users to be caricatured as these irresponsible, uh, degenerate people. And that's just, that's not the majority of drug users. It is true that some drug users are irresponsible, but they're not irresponsible because of their drug use. They just happen to be irresponsible because they haven't gotten they haven't gotten the skills for some reasons, or they have some tragedy in their life. Whatever the case may be, we blame drugs. And so I wanted to disrupt that narrative, and I wanted to pitch, uh, present a more realistic view. And I also wanted to um, ask the people who are in the closet uh, with their drug use, and they are responsible people, responsible people. I wanted to ask them to come out of the closet to help change this narrative and take some pressure off of the people who are being persecuted for using drugs. They're being persecuted because people think that they are irresponsible. They think all of these things and drugs are causing them to be that way. It's just not true. So I'm asking people to come out of the closet and help correct this false narrative. I find that so important because it's something that I've personally faced as well because I've got these official roles or within uh, organisations. And But the reason I came into drug law reform in the first place is because of the illness. So I hold my hands up and I'm on record, is it? But I still don't like to admit that I use cannabis and I use uh, uh, codeine. And I still feel stigmatised because of that. So is it at that point now where we all do have to be open and go, look, I'm a drug user? Do we have to have that before we can reach the next stage of a sensible conversation about how we can use these for pleasure and therapies? I think I think we we do all have to get out of the closet, just like the LBDG, LBTQ community got out of the closet. And now we have a certain amount of respect for that community and that community is seen as um, courageous, all of those, as they should, all of those things. Uh, but they had to get out of the closet in force and they had to demand their rights. Um, and so mad props to them. And I'm asking our community to do the same thing um, uh, because otherwise uh, people can keep those false narratives about a drug user. They don't think of a drug user as being someone who has accomplished all of these things. Um, hell, our, la our last three presidents in the United States before this idiot Trump, we had Obama, uh, um, a noted cocaine user, um, cannabis user, uh, George Bush, noted cannabis user, 
also widely suspected of using cannabis. Um, and Bill Clinton, of course, used cannabis. All drug users. But when we think of drug users, we don't think of them. But they were drug users because they were in the closet and they hid it uh, from people and they run away from it today, which is cowardly. Of course, they are cowards. And, and so um, that's a bit annoying to me. They, they are cowards in the face of all of these people being persecuted for the very same thing they did and they became these national heroes. That doesn't make any sense to me and that's not very uh, courageous um, and that's not very honorable. Is this where the media plays a part as well? Because as we mentioned with LGBTQ+, that historically these were things that would be used as scandals and drug use is also with, with regards to you know, politicians. There's always a scandal of like, they're using this at this party. And can the, is the media still cranking up this, this project fear? Yes, the media certainly does, but the media only has the amount of power that we give them. Um, and so one of the things I'm trying to do with this book, I'm trying to take away that power from the media. So it's like, um, Columbia professor uses heroin. You got damn right. So what? Uh, he also is one of the most prolific people you ever want to meet. He also was the former chair of his department. Uh, his kids graduated from Ivy League institutions. Um, he supports his family. He does all these things. What the fuck are you talking about? That's, the, that's what I like people to, uh, to say. So please come at me. Uh, because I know I will never have a drug use problem because I have too many damn people uh, who are depending on me. And you also make a point, I've seen numerous t uh, talks that you've given, that when there is a alternative in the sense of if people have got circumstances that are conducive to a nice environment, then problematic use doesn't become an issue because you're still using it as a pleasure or a therapy. So all the while you have, it's, you know, Johan used the example of Rat Park. So all the while that you have got a happy environment, is that the, the raft of keeping um, a non-problematic use? Well, the major thing of keeping a non-problematic problematic use is that the person has to be mature. So it's a matter about maturity first. Um, uh, we can think of people who will tell these stories. And this is, these are the stories that we have to kill the media on. They like to tell stories about some young person who is now older. Some young person said, oh, I used heroin when I was 19 and uh, it was too good. I was out of control and I can't use that drug. Now this person is 50. Now, between 19 and 50 years old, there's a hell of a lot of development that occurs. And so the person that said they can't use heroin at 50, bullshit. You know, you have developed in so many ways. I mean, when I was 19, I uh, drove my car at speeds that I probably shouldn't have driven it. I did all kinds of things that I would no longer do today because I have developed emotionally, intellectually, all of these things. And I have all of these responsibilities that I am fully aware of and that are important to me. And so all of that changes how I engage in other activities. And so development is critically important. And of course, those alternatives are important, like things like those responsibilities, other outlets for, uh, for uh, deriving pleasure and reward. They're all important. All that's important. But the key is development. Because if you have an irresponsible person um, and they take some psychoactive substance in, the likelihood is that they're going to behave irresponsibly, whether it's taking a drug, whether it's not paying their bills, whether it's driving an automobile, whatever it may be, you have an irresponsible person. And so as a society, we want to make sure we help people to develop in general, just across the board, because young people make mistakes that they don't usually make as they get older. It's quite interesting for me having this conversation with you because I was 
not going to mention to you about personal use, both me and yourself, but you know, you're very open about personal use. And it's, as you made clear, it's, it's needed before we can have a, a progression in conversation. So what was it like for you personally when you had that moment of, do you know what, let's just get it out there. This is, this is me, this is who I am and what I like to do. Was that a big step for you or was it not a really a big deal? Oh, of course, it's a big deal today. Um, I still don't know what, uh, you know, I know it makes my university uncomfortable, it makes people uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, I was raised in the tradition of the civil rights movement. I studied the civil rights movement. And uh, my heroes are people like Rosa Parks, uh, the woman who sat on the bus and refused to give up her seat to a white person as the law dictated. All of these people are my heroes. They were taking a risk to highlight an unjust law. They were bringing attention to an unjust law. And in order to do that, that's called civil disobedience. In order to engage in civil disobedience, there has to be a risk. And there's a risk to me. And so I knew it. And so the question for me I had to face is, am I willing to go to prison for this? And the answer is, yes, I don't want to go to prison, but this is wrong. It goes against our founding document. Our founding document, the Declaration of Independence, established that every citizen has a, as a birthright at least, two, at least three rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Using drugs in your pursuit of happiness falls with under that those birthrights. Why in the hell have we somehow suspended that right without consulting me? I'm not sacrificing my birthright. And so I'm willing to put it on the line. Um, um, and it, if that means uh, consequences, negative consequences, I'm willing to fight for it. And that's where I decided that, wait a second, Martin Luther King is my hero. Rosa Parks is my hero. Among other Americans who fought to make our country a more perfect union, and we're still fighting for that. Uh, how in the hell can I say that they are my heroes? And when it was my time, I sat on the sideline. I don't consider myself a man if I sat on the sideline. I don't consider myself an adult. If I sit on the sideline and I know better, I consider myself a coward. And I don't want to look in the mirror of being a coward. I don't want to face my children being a coward. And that's really what drove me. Would you say that the conversations that we're having now, obviously drug policy is this very big intertwined issue. Is it as up there as the characters and the civil rights movement that you've just mentioned is it is this the greatest thing that we're facing now or would you cr take criticism from someone that's not necessarily inclined to believe that yeah um well uh, the fact is it's certainly on par with those things now uh, none of these things are mutually exclusive so when we think about drugs and what we're doing with drugs uh, in, the US, in the UK, in the US, we are disproportionately arresting black and poor people for drugs. That means that they have records. That means criminal records. That means that the likelihood of them getting jobs will be impeded. Uh, the likelihood that they participate in the society in a meaningful way will be impeded. That means that uh, they won't make as much progress for their future generations, for their children. Um, and so I'm trying to put an end to that. So absolutely, this is on par with what people face during civil rights or any sort of uh, civil rights movement, because this is a civil rights movement. And anybody who doesn't make the connection between uh, drug arrests and people incarcerated, well, uh, they need to read a little more. They need to read some of the, they need to read my book. They need to read other people's books. Uh, but it's very clear. Um, now, it is true some people in the society uh, who might be 
traditional civil rights advocates um, are uncomfortable about the drug situation. And they're uncomfortable because they have fallen victim to the lies that have been perpetrated and perpetuated about drugs, that drugs have destroyed these communities and you know the lies that have been told. Uh, in my first book, High Price, I have uh, destroyed those laws, I mean those lies. Um, the house I live in has done that. Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, has done that. A number of books have like shown um, that that's not true. Um, uh, these drug laws have done more to continue the subjugation of specific groups than anything present. And I suppose that is one of the reasons that we should all be open and honest about drug use is because if we, as you said, just destroy that straight out, go, let's make that a non-issue, will we then start to address the inequalities and the you know, the damn right um, mystifying lies that go with the, the the entangled web of drug policy, will we actually start to address that? I think, yes. We what, what we will do is that we will take away one tool that's used to uh, subjugate these folks. There'll be one tool. They have a number of tools at their disposal. Um, since I study drugs and I know a lot about drugs, I am working on the tool that I know a lot about. Other people, I hope, will continue to work on other tools like discrimination in employment, uh, discrimination in housing, all the rest of these sorts of things. I hope other people also do their job. I'm trying to do my job because uh, when people talk about drugs causing all of these problems, I have the evidence to the contrary and um, I can help in that domain. So I'm trying to stay in my lane uh, to provide a service uh, that, I'm, that I'm qualified to provide. So let's, let's go back to basics a little bit. So drug use for grown-ups. What is the book actually about and how did you go about writing it? Yeah, so drug use for grown-ups is really about and for grown-ups. So that is people who have managed to grow up adults. I want to make that clear. Um, uh, and it's really an invitation for people to um, see how drugs can be used to enhance their life functioning in a responsible way. Um, we oftentimes get these narratives about drugs being only dangerous and only disruptive. Um, that's just simply not true. So I wanted to write a book that told a more comprehensive story about the effects of drugs. And then when we think about the effects of drugs, uh, the overwhelming majority of effects of drugs are positive. That is, a small percentage of people become addicted and have problems. The overwhelming majority of people um, have a good time. Drugs enhance uh, life functioning. Uh, for example, drugs have brought me, uh, my wife and I, a lot closer to each other. Um, they enhance intimacy. They enhance um, openness. They enhance... Um, um, uh, emotional uh, closeness. Uh, they, uh, they enhance euphoria, um, energy. Um, they also um, uh, have this ability to increase uh, one's ability to be uh, magnanimous, uh, forgiving, all of these sorts of things that uh, some of these drugs offer. Um, they help me to reset and think about uh, people in more generous terms. Uh, like, for example, as being the chair of my department. It was a stressful job, an awful job for someone like me who uh, uh, is really productive uh, because you have to make sure everybody else is taken care of before you can get to your work. And it can make you uh, resentful because you can't get to your work, like writing this book. 
Um, uh, drugs have helped, they, they helped me to be more understanding um, and help me to make sure that I don't, I don't add or contribute to someone else's stress, anxiety. Because I know that if I did that, particularly to someone who is subordinate, someone who is junior, our, my interaction with that person could reverberate, could, could reverberate such that they had uh, negative interactions with their loved ones um, as, uh, as, as subsequently. I don't ever want to do that kind of thing. And so like my drug use uh, helped me to uh, think about those things and helped me to be more present and compassionate with folks and um, the people who I know and interact with who use drugs. That's what we're seeking. And that's what we do when we go to when people go to festivals. Uh, it is an open community, loving community. People are uh, understanding that we're all in this thing together and we have a responsibility to each other. Um, and, uh, but it's also a lot of work because being responsible means that you are constantly evaluating your own behavior to determine how it's impacting other people. And if it's negatively impacting other people, then you have the responsibility to alter that. Um, and so that's drug use as I see it. And, um, but we only have this character view of drug use that fits into the sort of television drama or the film drama of, this person who has misbehaved and is just irresponsible, um, that is mythology. I mean, it is true that people who use drugs can be irresponsible, but I assure you, they were irresponsible before the drug use. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's so true, isn't it, that drug use, when depicted, comes with mood music every single time. There's always that, that big grandiose moment of, oh, this is about to get dark. So how do we go about, um, prime example, you know, a, a couple would get up in the morning, they'll have their super espresso, I don't know, I don't drink coffee, so, you know, whatever it be. And then in the evening, they'll share a bottle of wine on the sofa. That's their drug use. So how do you make someone that is probably, it's fair to say, institutionalized, extend their boundary into thinking, well, actually, other people can use drug use in MDMA and, and cocaine and TCB and all these other things. But how, how do we make sure that those people are getting this message? Uh, so the people who are using alcohol, it's easier because the thing that you point out or I try to point out is that 
Alcohol is a drug. In fact, alcohol is one of the ideal drugs for getting into the brain because of its molecular sort of weight and structure. Um, it almost has no blood-brain barrier. So alcohol, unlike cocaine, unlike heroin and those sorts of things that need to be transported across the blood-brain barrier so it takes a little longer, alcohol has no barrier. It just goes in the brain quickly. And so meaning that it also has the greatest potential to be toxic uh, to the brain. Um, and so it's a drug. But we have had decades, centuries in some cases, in dealing with alcohol education, helping people how to use it more safely. For example, the unit dose that we put in, um, I don't know, a quart or, or a pint or whatever we put, uh, the amount of alcohol in a pint is carefully controlled to make sure that it's, we don't overdo it in the unit dose. Um, we have all of this public education about alcohol in our films. Uh, if you watch a film and someone gets up in the morning and have a drink, the first thing they do is have a drink. That's frowned upon typically in these sort of films. And that's part of the education. There are appropriate times to drink alcohol, and we all know it. Part of the public education. So you have this tremendous amount of public education about alcohol. If you had the same thing about heroin, you would see people behave in similar ways, responsible ways with heroin. But we just haven't had the tremendous uh, public health educational campaigns for heroin, for cocaine, as we have for alcohol. I submit to you, if we have had, we would have had far less problem. Um, and we bring those heroin users out of the shadows and integrate them into society. So when they are using thing, the drug wrong or making mistakes, we can say, oh, oh, oh no, this is much more effective, much more efficient. Do it this way. The way you're doing it is going to cause you to have uh, some sort of skin illness. Uh, and so um, we haven't had that public education campaign. And that's what uh, that's the major difference with alcohol. So with the, the opioid crisis that, that America are facing and, you know, probably the UK as well is in a in a fair um, contextualized manner is that we have these the overdose deaths, uh, you know, prolific now. And you make examples of this within certain talks. Is it the actual drug, or is it the misinformation, and also the societal problems that come with it? Which which is it we should be addressing? Yeah. So um, in the book, I talk about we don't have an opioid crisis. We have an opioid reporting data crisis. Uh, and let me explain what I mean here. In the United States, our death investigators are it's a two tier system. Uh, you have medical examiners who have uh, medical training, medical degrees. They have an MD. They're physicians. And they typically have uh, four years training in pathology as well. And so they're certified as a pathologist. Um, and then the other tier system, uh, we have these things we call corners. We got this system from you guys. Now, to be a coroner in the United States, the only thing you need to have is a high school diploma and be a registered voter. Now, the majority of death investigators in the United States are not medical ex examiners who are uh, physicians. They are coroners. They have, these are the ones required to have a high school diploma. And they take a, a course of that can range anywhere from, I believe, four weeks to 32-week course on death investigations. Um, and these are the people who are determining that this was an opioid-related death. And now, when, you, when people say opioid-related death, it typically means that an opioid was defined, I mean, was found in the person's, in the deceased's body at the time of the death. 
doesn't always mean that because sometimes we don't have biological confirmation. In about 20% of the cases, we don't have biological confirmation. Now, you have an opioid, let's just go with the ones that would have an opioid in the body at the time of the deceased. Now, you also have multiple other drugs in the majority of these cases in the body of the deceased. And you don't know which of any of those drugs caused the death. That's not, we don't know that. When, you, when I start looking at the blood levels in the deceased's body of opioids, typically it's nowhere near the range that could have caused the deceased's death. Now, that does not mean that there wasn't another drug that they didn't measure for that didn't cause that death. Because we don't measure for everything. There might be new toxins that we're unaware of. For example, there are new uh, fentanyl analogs all the time that we don't test for and we don't know. And there are other drugs we don't test for and we don't know. But typically, the opioid itself in the body of the deceased is far below the levels that would cause respiratory depression. That's how people die from an opioid. So those numbers have been inflated because of what I just said. And they're also inflated because uh, if you have multiple drugs in the body, each of those drugs are counted uh, and they can be counted more than once. Uh, if you have, um, um, uh, so that could be, that's one person. Now that one person can have three drugs in their bodies. That they, if they had opioids in their body, if they had barbiturates in their body, if they had alcohol in their body, all of those things are caught, they, they're, they're determined to be separate deaths. And so that's an alcohol-related death. That's an opioid-related death. That's a barbiturate-related death. And so the system of how we count in the United States is deeply flawed and, and biased. It's biased to make the numbers appear far more than they actually are. But that's not the real crime. The real crime is that we never get to the bottom of why people have died. That's the real crime. And I, I, and I go through this painstakingly in the book to try to help people to understand how they're being manipulated. Because please remember, a drug like fentanyl has been approved for medicine in the United States since 1960. And we give fentanyl to patients, young children, uh, who, are, uh, who may be suffering from severe, moderate to severe, severe pain uh, from cancer or something of that nature. We even have fit to those lollipops that we give to kids. Um, and it's fine. Once you have a level of tolerance, it's not a big deal and it helps with the, it helps with the pain. The problem is, when people take a drug like a fentanyl analog, which is far more potent than uh, heroin, when they take a fentanyl analog thinking that it's heroin alone and they overdo it, that can cause respiratory depression. Easy fix. There is an easy fix. Drug checking, you know, drug checking services, um, if you implement uh, widespread drug checking services where people can test uh, the contents of their substance uh, anonymously and uh, uh, for free, uh, that will get rid of this sort of ignorance about what's in your, what's contained in your substance. And when people know what's in their substance, if it contains a contaminant, you can choose not to take it or you can choose how much of it to take. Um, that would go a long way in saving some lives. Instead, we're hell-bent on uh, exaggerating the extent to which the opioids are contributing uh, 
to overdose deaths. You speak and write as well about drug consumption rooms, of how not only are they a practical use, but also through education. And presumably, you're all about education. Education for what we're talking about in the book, uh, dr a drug use for grown ups, but also education for the, for the consumer of drugs, of how they can use safely. Is that something that we should be looking at now? Yeah, the uh, drug consum consumption room, I am a fan with a caveat. One of the things that happens is that the liberals, the do-gooders, uh, they oftentimes confuse uh, drug consumption rooms as being the end-all. And they, they, they confuse drug consumption rooms about, being, about drug addiction. And they are not about drug addiction. Drug consumption rooms are about homelessness. Um, and that's what we need to really work on first, making sure that people have adequate housing. Because, like I use drugs, I would never use in a drug consumption room. Uh, when I want to use my drug, I want to be in my space where I'm comfortable um, and outside of the prying eyes of anybody. Um, and so the people who frequent drug consumption rooms are desperate. They have no other choice. Um, and so what we should do as a society is first make sure that they have adequate housing then there would be less need for drug consumption rooms. Um, we haven't done that, and so we have to have drug consumption rooms. So I want people to clearly understand that that's the first goal. Uh, drug consumption rooms is not the end all. That is not it. Um, and because if people had their own space, I'm sure they would much prefer to uh, be, psycho be psychoactively altered in the comforts of their, uh, the confines of their own home. It must be interesting for you when you speak to people like me that, that you know, potentially have got a little bit of knowledge with drug policy, but may still fall into those traps of language like you just picked up there of straight away, I framed uh, heroin use and opioid use in, in problematic terms because I brought up drug consumption rooms. So is it, are people like me also the problem of actually when I need to extend my my vocabulary and, and horizons in, t in terms of thinking not every drug use is problematic? Yeah, uh, I think that it's a learning curve for all of us, right? I mean, I studied uh, drugs for uh, 30 years in the lab and uh, much of that time I was trying to develop treatment medications to help people drug deal with drug addiction thinking that the problem was a drug and it's taken me damn near 30 years to realize hold up this is not about drugs um, and so uh, we all keep learning and that's fine as long as we are moving and learning and flexible cognitively flexible uh, that's the best. I mean, um, because it's great conversation when we learn from each other. Um, uh, the problem is when people are resistant uh, for some reason, like many people in science, because uh, they are resistant because their funding for their labs depend upon it, just like the cops are resistant, because funding for them is dependent upon this model just like the politicians are resistant, just like the treatment providers are resistant. All of these people, they are financially tied to a model that is not working for the people, for the very people that they say they, that they say that they're serving. I'm going to put you on the spot now. So if you was elected pre a president tomorrow, what would be the policy rollouts that you would do to make sure that we save lives and, uh, don't restrict liberties, how would your policy look? The first thing that I would do is get rid of any penalty for drug uh, possession. Gone. Uh, and certainly there would be no priority in going after low-level dealers. That would be just gone. And then the multinational sort of co corporations who are in this business 
um, we'll work with them to make sure that they're uh, to find out about their quality controls to make sure that they are not uh, including contaminants. And that's where the penalties will go. Uh, people who have contaminants in their substances, that's where major, the major uh, penalties will go. And we will not be using incarceration as penalties uh, for uh, when it comes to drugs. That just would not be a case. And we will, I would start to work on coming up with a legal uh, regulation scheme that works for the major drugs that people seek. Cocaine, heroin, MDMA, all of the major drugs. And then we can think about those other drugs as we get the schemes um, um, in working order for those uh, that people are seeking. That's number one. Public education will uh, uh, be happening simultaneously. We will have uh, public service announcements about which drugs you can mix and which ones you shouldn't mix. We will have per public service announcements about dose, about level of experience. Um, we would roll out um, uh, equipment that would make sure that people have clean uh, functional equipment uh, and we would dispatch uh, drug educators, not the idiots who are typically doing it today, people who actually know something about pharmacology, uh, would be rolled out across the nation, making sure that people are, are being educated on how to do this. Is there a danger of, if we do have regulation, that we're going to be persecuting groups um, through the way that regulation is happening? You know, we're seeing a big commercialization of cannabis already. Is there a danger that this is the next thing that we're going to have to address? Um, when we think about uh, car manufacturers, uh, gun manufacturers in the US, uh, do we have that problem? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why, why, what, maybe I'm missing something. It's just from, from my perspective, and it might be completely wrong, that um, Social equity, uh, um, social equity uh, schemes that are happening in Massachusetts, for example, they seem to be slightly of a minority. Is it that we need to think in terms of more social equity uh, schemes as opposed to just, you know, carte blanche commercialization? Yeah. Yeah, you know, again, this is where we, the liberals in drug policy, are unrealistic. Uh, and we conflate... Um, um, centuries of discrimination uh, with this notion that, oh, the discrimination was caused by drug policy. No, drug policy is just one tool that's used for that. The discrimination is in our history and in our sort of who we are. Now, we need to actually disband that sort of disrupt that. We need to disband and disrupt that discrimination. But we would be fucking naive if we think that drug policy is going to do it. That's not going to do it. We, of course, we will uh, uh, do our best in terms of like what we're doing with cannabis. People who were convicted of cannabis related crimes clear their records. Um, we try and give them a leg up in the industry. That's cool. Uh, but the bottom line is, as long as you have these capitalistic societies, the people who have the res financial resources are the ones who are going to benefit first. That's going to be, that, that's just how it works in capitalism. And to think that drug policy is going to alter that literal drug policy is going to alter that. That's naive. And I'm not wasting my time uh, with that sort of naive thinking. Because if you recall, um, with cannabis, when we had cannabis, medical cannabis first in the U.S., um, everybody was saying, we're not going to make a profit. You can't make a profit on it. Nobody will be making a profit. 
That's the stupidest shit. It's like, how are you going to run a business if you're not going to run, if you're not going to make a profit? You're not going to be in business very long and nobody's going to get good product. That's just stupid. I mean, if yeah, people should make profit, but we will hold their feet to the fire to make sure that their industry, in terms of demographics, is reflective of the society. And we can, for example, we can make sure that all of this is posted on their websites. We can do that sort of thing. What does your industry look like demographically? How well are you doing in, in these sort of markers? Yes, let's do it. But by no means drug policy or changing this drug policy is going to eliminate racial discrimination and social inequalities. That's, that's not going to happen. And that's unrealistic. So just to conclude now, because you've given me so much of your time and it's just, I knew it would be fascinating, but my word it has been. So drug use for grown-ups. who needs to read this book and how can we go about getting this to the, to the realms that we need, you know, so policymakers and, and the media, what can we do to, to get behind what you've written? Yeah, the people who I want to read it most are people who are drug users and closeted. And there are a lot of us, I mean, a lot of these people, people who uh, didn't really think about social uh, equity, and, and that's fine, uh, but people who love their drugs. I hope they read this book. Um, uh, I, politicians uh, will read the book when all of those other people read the books, because the politicians never lead, they follow. And so if we can get those people who love drugs uh, to read the book and to look, take a long look in the mirror. Um, and, and if they come to the conclusion that they have to do something and that something is get out of the closet. You don't have to go to some poor community and do some community service. Nope. All you have to do is come out of the closet with your friends, with your relatives, and say, hey, I'm responsible, I've been doing these, I've been meeting all my obligations, and i also been using drugs, and it has allowed me to tolerate you motherfuckers. So that, I mean, that that would be great. Is there, is there a point in the near future where we can have those honest discussions without even an eyebrow being raised, it just being normality? Is it is it there? I certainly have those discussions, and that's where uh, I'm trying to live my life. You know, I have more, uh, fewer years facing me than I have past. And so um, I am trying to live like a grown up, and anybody forcing me to live like a child, uh, they will get a fight because I am no longer, I'm no longer a child, and I'm not living like one. I think that's a perfect point to, to wrap up on. So thank you so much, Dr. Cole Hart. I, I knew that it would be a, a fascinating conversation, but yeah, my word, you, you surpassed my expectations. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Jason. I'm so happy to have done your, your podcast, man. Well, he didn't disappoint. Thank you so much, Dr. Cole Hart. Drug use of grown-ups, please go seek this book out. We, we so need this conversation, don't we? And yes, thank you, Dr. Cole Hart. That was, a yeah, I would say a dream come true. I would. And thank you so much to the producers of this show, Nikki, Tristan and John. Thank you for all you do. Thank you to My Name is Ad for the Artwork, Johnny Ball for the theme tune, Scooby's Pick the Phone List on your network. Thank you to all of you that listen. Don't forget if you can help by subscribing, sharing, passing this message on. That always helps. Find us on Twitter at UKLeap. Find us on Instagram at UKLeap. And our Facebook and website is UKLeap.org. And yeah, if you want to give me a follow, I'm at Jason Tron. But you don't have to do that it's not what it's about is it but thank you so much dr carl hart again it's absolutely a pleasure to speak to you i hope we can speak to you again in the future and i so 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 recommend that we all buy drug use for grown-ups on that note i'm off bye bye behind your barricades yeah but how long can i stay behind your barricades Seldom 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.